The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Now. This new a la carte digital service lets you watch contemporary art house and classic films from the extensive Kino Lorber Library, including over 50 New York Film Festival alums. Start watching today at KinoNow.com. Welcome to Film at Lincoln Center. Uh, my name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Um, this is the 57th New York Film Festival presented by Film at Lincoln Center, where we're celebrating 50 years of supporting the art and craft of cinema. This is the Film Comment Festival wrap. Uh, this is a nice kind of annual ritual where we can kind of download all our opinions uh, right into your heads directly. Um, it's a painless process, don't worry. Um, but uh, as usual, I'm, I'm very happy to be joined uh, by an all-star lineup. So I'll just proceed by the order they're standing. Uh, Nellie Killian, uh, who's a contributing editor to Film Comment and a programmer. Uh, Amy Taubin, uh, also a contributing editor to Film Comment and to our... Uh, Phoebe Chen, a critic and writer of our recent Joker review. Uh, and finally, Michael Koreski, um, bon vivant, uh, um, film comment mainstay. So uh, where to begin? I think this year has just been a kind of embarrassment of, of riches, at least in my experience. Also just really rewarding in terms of watching movies with audiences. I, I almost thought we could start with that. Because I don't know that it's every year that there are so many films where you feel like you can feel the audience like hanging on beats and, and there's almost a colon response. Like Baccarat comes to mind in terms of that. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a movie where there are like two or three scenes that just you can feel like a wave going across the audiences. Was, was that everyone else's experience a bit as well? Yeah. I unfortunately didn't see a whole lot of them okay. in, the, in the theater. So no. <laughs> But there were a number that I, I wish I had. I mean, not just for the audience experience and something like Baccarat, but um, watching Vitalina Varela, it's just such a gorgeous film. I yeah. To see it projected on a big screen yeah. with those you know deep blacks and incredible compositions, I, I really felt like I was missing out. Yeah. No, there's, yeah, there's certainly movies that just acquired a special power. And you can't perceive those blacks otherwise. Someone was saying that also um, for the... Um, the print, the special IV Technicolor print they were showing of The Godfather Part Two, um, you know, you can only really see that those kind of those particular blacks in in, in that setting. Well, um, since I seem to be the only one who sees movies with audiences, and you're no, I've been seeing movies <laughs> with audiences. Um, they've been great audiences. I mean, yeah. Portrait of a Lady on Fire had a great audience, yeah. and Parasite. Well, how about we start with some movies that have been overlooked a little bit, um, just in I don't know. People, what people are talking about. I thought one that's kind of been interesting in that regard is To the Ends of the Earth, uh, the Kiyoshi Kurosawa film, uh, which um, Amy and I were just talking about beforehand. It sort of recalls um, Tokyo Sonata, I think you were saying, or that was at least the last one that had the same power. Yeah. I mean, it's not really like Tokyo Sonata, yeah. ex except that it's not a horror film. <laughs> um, and I just thought it, his his relationship to his star, who is just remarkable on screen. And it is, it's a real feminist film. Um, and uh, I mean, she seems like this very young woman who finds her vocation, which is not to be a, a TV 
announcer, but actually to sing. And his camera is just in love with her, the way Godard's camera was in love with Anna Karina. And she mm-hmm. deserves that attention. Yeah. So I thought it was remarkable. Yeah. It, it's it, yeah. It's it's also a movie that, um, you know, the, the the way he shoots exteriors in the movie, it's it's always in in some reflection of of her her feelings of angst and 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 I haven't seen like there are sort of, sort of chase like scenes that, that I, I haven't seen shot quite that well where uh, you know you really get a sense of how she's alienated in in, in these larger surroundings um, and. Yeah, I don't want to be a, uh, I guess a reality show bit journalist, <laughs> is my takeaway. <laughs> I was um, I was really fascinated by the film. I want also want to mention that, um, and I learned this from an up and coming critic who was in our Critics Academy uh, this year. Her name is Moiko Fuji. She's going to be writing about the film. And when she saw it, she said that the star of To the Ends of the Earth, the Kurosawa film, is this major J-pop star. In Japan, mm-hmm. something that I didn't know while I was watching it, so I was just kind of bringing my own yeah. lack of cultural awareness to the part. But there's a whole other rich um, layer to it if you do know who she is. When I saw it, I just thought it was a completely unique vision. I, I, I was completely taken by surprise. I think when we get to the New York Film Festival, sometimes these films are played at a lot of other festivals, so we kind of know what to expect. This one was just constant discovery, scene mm-hmm. after scene. I just yeah. absolutely loved it. I never knew where it was going or what it was doing. And by the end, it, I had, it was overwhelmingly emotional. Yeah. And it doesn't have distribution here, unfortunately. Right. Um, maybe it will, but it doesn't right now. Yeah, it's one of those films that people say, what should I go see? Because they're doing encore screenings this weekend, and that's oh, yeah. playing, and I tell people, see to the ends of the earth. Because yeah. you, you may have missed this one, and, and you may miss it in the future. His films don't always get released, Kurosawa. Yeah. It's also a film that might sound a little, a certain amount of cliche, like a stranger in it, like an unfamiliar land or unfamiliar country, but it never really turns that into like a joke. Um, the people she encounters, they're, they're always pretty much human beings. They're not always acting how you expect them to, like she, when she runs into some policeman and that sort of thing. And it has the most beautiful animal in the festival, which is a goat, a white goat. <laughs> That's always important. Um, but but there's also, also, yeah. I certainly. just want to say one more thing about it. It's one of those movies where you never know whether you're supposed to be laughing or crying or maybe even screaming. And there are these just bizarre set pieces. There's like maybe a 10 minute sequence of her on this ridiculous amusement park ride where she's, because she's a reality TV star and she's going around, she's um, trying to pretend that she's having, is it Uzbekistan? Yeah. Is that where yeah. it is? She has to kind of pretend that she's enjoying all these different um, amusements or meals or rides. And it's clearly this horrible, painful experience being on this ride that she has to smile through. And this, that the pain of smiling through discomfort, something that um, I think we've all felt, just and, really comes through. And then she gets to sing, and she has a remarkable voice. It's oh, great. Yeah. Um, be, since it's set in like another country, and, and I, 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 it makes me think a little bit about other movies that you know, you're seeing another country through a foreign filmmaker's eyes, in a way. Um, Zombie Child might be one example of that, or, or Vitalina, Vitalina Varela as well. Um, just throwing that out there. There was a, um, an interesting moment in the Q&A for Zombie Child uh, where Bonello was sort of speaking to this very specific thing um, about his sort of position as a French man making a film in Haiti, which he you know, talked about wanting to be outside of the sort of comfort zone he'd gotten into of making films all in France. And um, he said something that kind of, it, it was one of those things that I heard it and, you know, you're talking off the cuff in a Q&A and I think he was sort of mashing together a number of ideas. But 
what he ended up saying was that uh, he talked about gaining the sort of trust and respect of um, the crew and all the people he was working with in Haiti and sort of the process of educating himself and all this. Um, but then he said, and this also may have been um, in part like sort of a self-protective thing in a Q&A setting, where he talked about wanting to have the exact right distance from the material, that he didn't want to be too familiar, but he also didn't want um, to be coming at it from as a complete outsider. So like, kind of like what was the zone to be in, to be able mm -hmm. to be like a, the proper zone for the colonial gaze, I guess. And he, um, <laughs> um, and then he cited that uh, a person who had the exact right distance was Maya Darren, which was very confusing to me because uh, her relationship um, to the film she made in Haiti is so complicated to act like that's just a mark that you hit is very confusing. I think he was just trying to say that he felt like she had done it right. Mm. But um, it was something that I thought about as I watched some of these other films, um, sort of what the impulse is to work, to decide that you want to make a film in Haiti um, and to want to make a film about voodoo and all of this, mm. or um, in the case of Pedro Costa, um, his sort of continued relationship mm -hmm. with um, the former residents of Fountain House. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, I don't know if other people have thoughts about this as well, a little bit convoluted, but um, <laughs> it was just something that, uh, to say it so plainly, like there's, like you take two steps to the right, one step to the left, and now you can turn on the camera and make <laughs> your food movie, yeah. uh, seemed uh, pretty reductive to me. Um, but yeah. I mean, yeah. the Costa is just so collaborative in a way that I don't feel like Bonello's films come across as. He has yeah. a very specific aesthetic vision that he articulates in all of his films. And I doubt that he came to Haiti with that hmm. collaborative. Oh, no, I actually right. think that I was thinking about with the Costa because it is so different um, yeah. in part, uh, just to clarify for myself, but it was something I thought of, that, that interaction while watching the Costa film. But uh, Vitalina Morella could go on about, I mean, that's what we already talked about, how it's just an absolutely beautiful film, and you just feel like he must have, without feeling like the labor of it, but that he labors over every single sequence, um, and there's a, the depth to a lot of these, you know, like the opening shot of people proceeding towards you in the darkness, um, just utterly remarkable. Um, and I, I, it doesn't have some sort of conflicted distance to it. Um, I mean, maybe to build on what I was saying yeah. with that, I think that actually his relationship, part of what's so incredible, as you were saying, the collaborative nature, this film sort of brings like a whole other level of artifice to what he's been doing. And um, he's working with performers uh, mm -hmm. that he's worked with several times, yeah. that um, it does feel like this sort of ever evolving relationship to this place. Um, yeah. And to these people that is is quite different, uh, like a true collaboration, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Costa has time and again managed somehow miraculously to circumvent these kind of questions of the colonialist gaze. Not that he circumvented them completely, but that through his aesthetic and through the way he is with his actors and these settings that he continually returns to, he's able to, um, at least he's persuaded me and many people over the years that he has the right to show these images, be with these people, tell these stories. Um, and I thought this was a beautiful film. I think it has an amazing central performance. Um, just to step back, because I think guess we're making the comparison sort of to Zombie Child. I've, I I felt like Zombie Child. Um, it's it's just kind of like a quick. Um, I don't want to say half-assed, but I was like <laughs> um, an attempt to 
ask certain questions without having completely thought about it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, the they both have this Turner um, reference point, right? The Jacques Turner, I Walked with mm-hmm. a Zombie, um, you know, classic Hollywood film that deals with um, voodoo. And Bonello seems to think that the film is kind of like an academic treatise on this somehow, but I feel like um, it's just not a completely, um, it's not a successful attempt to subvert things from that movie. I, I, mm. I really, and I say this willingly admitting that I would have to see it again to have a complete thought about it, but it really felt like a first draft kind of movie. And I mm. normally like his films so much. I think that I think they're so layered and interesting. Yeah. And also kinetic, the filmmaking. Everything here felt a little flatter to me. Mm. Well, we, we better move on before we commit a murder or something. Um, but uh, um, I mean, just thinking about the performances, we've been in, in um, Vidal and Varela, this unusual circumstance of these uh, as collaborators, but who aren't necessarily actual, you know, by profession actors. Um, maybe we can just flip to the most professional of actors, the sense that like that is literally being a star um, marriage story. I don't know that we've actually talked about in on our film comment podcast, but there I'm kind of fascinated by how you have these these two pair of actors who I think have pretty different approaches uh, to performances and, and how that 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 kind of plays out. Um, for me, it was very it was very satisfying. I mean, I always Adam Driver has this still manages to preserve this. I mean, speaking of animals, I mean, I just mean he seems to have this kind of savantish like thing, little thing he still preserves about his 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 presence and just his mass um, and something about um, that then only makes his affect seem more genuine. Um, so I, I liked him. I also liked um, Scarlett Johansson. I feel like something was kind of revealed more with her, um, partly by the scenes that she's kind of allowed to do. But I don't know. How did people feel about? We can have a whole discussion about pairs as well because there are lots of interesting acting pairs in this this festival. Um, I like the script better than I like the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly, I mean, I think Adam Driver is great in, in the same way that I think that the, I've forgotten his name, the the young actor who's the lead in Martin Eden is great. Oh, I mean, they Luca have these big, yeah. big instruments I mean, that just take over and possess the screen, you know? Yeah. Um, and you couldn't just watch them walk from place to place, and it's <laughs> enough yeah. for them to take three steps. Um, I don't like Marriage Story in that I think Scarlett Johansson, for all that she's very good in it, her character is just perfectly awful. I mean, she is just a total bore. And I don't care about her. And why they didn't break up sooner, because they have absolutely nothing in common, except he didn't quite notice that he was living with her, which is interesting in itself. And then. He has two Stephen Sondheim songs, and you know, uh, I have this love-hate relationship to Stephen Sondheim. Adam Driver gets the great song, and she gets the totally awful, repulsive song. So what is that supposed to be? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got dealt a bad hand, I guess. <laughs> Oh yeah, I guess it, 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 being alive. Um, Did you see it? No, no, I haven't seen it. Oh well, yeah, that's it. Both from that's company. it. And, yeah, both um, from company. 
Adam, Adam, Adam Driver, Driver gets being alive. She yeah. gets you could drive a person crazy. Yeah. That's um, right. yeah. Of course, being alive, being the exciting, amazing, climactic, <laughs> emotional number. Yeah. I, I have to say, like I, we talked a little bit about this from Tiff Nick, but I, oh, yeah. I had I had like an overwhelmingly emotional reaction to this movie. Mm-hmm. I just um, much more so than I expected to. I thought it was um, extraordinary, actually. But and, and I, that really took me by surprise. There, I think it is there. there ultimately, is an imbalance. It's uh, it mm-hmm. it is certainly more Adam Driver's mm-hmm. character's movie. I guess that's it's not much of a surprise since Noah Baumbach wrote and directed it and based it on you know some things in his own past, um, recent past. But um, I still thought it was a like kind of profoundly fair film, and um, it just hit me. It hit me on many levels. Beautifully, yeah. beautifully done. Great, great lawyer characters. I thought. Great lawyers. I mean. <laughs> great disgusting lawyers yeah well they're just all very fully like imagined and and they're not like throwaway like exposition machines they're actually like different you know emotional centers in the movie um but um talking about movies maybe also that uh we haven't i mean you know in terms of actor pairs one other thing we haven't talked about is a first cow which for me is is a is a great (laughs) there was a groan you haven't seen it or (laughs) it's a good movie okay yeah okay (laughs) That was like the pain of like, oh, it's so good, it hurts. Um, but yeah, first cow, just you know, that's I just like the interplay of the two characters there. You know, that's you have the the cook character. I'm just describing it in case some people haven't seen it. But you have a cook character who's been working with trappers for a while and just you know, very very poorly treated, um, ends up in this settlement and then kind of is befriended um, by um, this entrepreneurial type. Actually, they meet in the woods first. Um, but uh, and I I just found it very touching their this depiction of friendship between them. I mean, even more than the interaction between Cookie, the main character, and the (laughs) friend who was actually a Chinese migrant whose name is, I think, King Lu, um, a scene that really struck me was towards the end of the film where King Lu and Cookie are on the run, they've been separated, and he comes to this river and he has to, like, go downstream across the river with a boat, and then this, like, an indigenous man appears on the embankment, and then there's just this silent moment of gestural communication between a Chinese migrant on the Oregon Trail in like 1820 and an indigenous man. It was just an interaction I'd never Mm -hmm. seen before um, in a way that didn't feel impossible um, as an image or a scene, but as someone working within material parameters of the historical archive and then Mm -hmm. being creative and like imagining or fabulating um, Mm -hmm. an interaction that I was very touched by. I'd just never seen something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a way where these aren't things you read in history books. It's not like there's some transcript of that conversation or something. And I I think there are a number of movies actually where that came to mind, where you're seeing something that you, I mean, you almost, this is what art is for in a way. It's for like imagining these past relationships and past encounters and instances of empathy. So it isn't just a chronicle of wars and pillaging. Um, but First Cow is like one, one example of that. I mean, it's not like a friendship like that is somewhere, right. you know. I mean, you could read letters maybe, I suppose. And th- that, that's a movie that's very finely detailed in terms of the period detail. Um, I mean, obviously Portrait of a Lady on Fire also comes to mind in this regard, um, both because of the, the relationship between the characters, but also the, um, you know, the the uh, 17th century painters that, you know, kind of gotten short shrift of the female painters. But yeah, any any other sort of, am I missing some other um, period films that kind of are um, excavating? There's a number that have sort of a 
interesting relationship to period. Yeah. Um, Martin Eden, of course, comes yeah. to mind, but also um, Endless Night, which was in oh, uh, yeah. Projections. Oh, yeah. Tell us about Endless Night. Yeah. Um, Endless Night is, it starts, uh, it's a film in three parts and um, begins with these sort of Straub Houillet uh, dialogues between um, people in this town primarily. And it, it is the very sort of uh, stark conversations about uh, life during wartime in, during uh, Franco's reign on the Spanish Civil War, uh, where it's, you know, a person I don't know, uh, doing like bricklaying, talking to a, a beggar. Um, <laughs> and they're reading sort of tidbits of um, material from letters and diaries and all sorts of things. But as it moves through these different movements, it begins to sort of focus on one character and sort of you're kind of going deeper into the more sort of natural landscape of Galatia. And he's talking about his experience as um, a person who's sort of wrongly imprisoned there mm -hmm. and sort of writing home about his, uh, you know, experience of having to sort of die in this uh, strange place. Um, but it is all set in the present day to a certain extent, mm -hmm. uh, sort of similar or like sort of an ambiguously in an, in an ambiguous present. Mm -hmm. And even the sort of past that they're referencing is sort of ambiguously mm -hmm. long. Yeah. So you do get a sense of this sort of, um, I don't know, I guess, eternal present of the ideas mm -hmm. that they're talking about and the things that these people are experiencing. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, Mar yeah, Martin Eden also has a kind of indeterminate more more explicitly just like you have no idea where between the 1920s and 1970s it's supposed to be by design i should add as 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 luca uh, not as a uh, pietro marcello said <laughs> himself uh and beanpole and beanpole Bean oh yeah pole, which is really an amazing movie yeah and he is an amazing director but that's stalingrad at at the end of right. the second world war uh and there are just these two remarkable performances from these young women who I think neither of them have done very much, if any, yeah, acting before. Right, yeah. um, and it's really about their friendship in which terrible things happen. Um, that, I mean, things that are out of their control, but something really ha horrible happens and amends have to be made for that mm -hmm. and they go wrong. and. Um, it's uh, an amazing film about the experience of women in in war and in a situation of famine. Um, yeah. And, you know, no one who isn't in the middle of that being able to understand anything about what they've gone through. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I, I I think I was reading somewhere that it's like this the second like there are two wars. There's the war itself, and then there's basically the war of survival afterwards. It's it's not like everything is wrapped up in a bow, um, at the end. I I do have one other that's sort of a oh, strange. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Man, uh, Manfred Kirchheimer's uh, Free Time. Oh, Free Time, yeah. Which is sort of an interesting example of almost like a documentary um, period yeah. piece. Um, for the past several years, he's been going through his personal archive of things that he shot in New York uh, over the, the past you know, 50, 60 years and making sort of new city symphonies with footage from the 50s, 60s. Yeah. Um, 
So he's working, it's archival, but he's working with his own archive, which is, you know, sort of interesting. And um, it is, uh, so in a sense, it's a portrait of New York that's, you know, created in the present with this person who has these sort of direct memories of it, but uh, definitely a portrait of a, a city yeah. long gone. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, I'm very fond of Stations of the Elevated, which used to be on YouTube, if you want to track it down. <laughs> um, well, yeah, always, of course, yeah. Disclaimer, always see it in the theater if you can. Um, well, who else wants to jump in with, with a particular pet film at this point? Michael, do you have? Um, I don't think anyone's mentioned Fire Will Come. Yet. Yes, that's good, yeah. And I hope that another film that I think just could be under the radar, I hope that people got to see it. Um, Oliver, I think, I don't know if it's pronounced Lax or Lache. I've heard different pronunciations. Mm. Um, this was really an amazing movie. It's just so visually splendid, but you, you, once, once you kind of get through that, you can actually get, um, because it's so striking from the beginning, you have these, these images of these trees and they're being leveled one by one in this forest. Um, and you only slowly come to realize what's happening in that sequence. And then you slowly come to realize what's happening with this main character who has um, been released from prison for um, suspected arson or accused of being an arsonist. And he goes home to live with his mother in a small village. Um, it's in Spain. And um, you just kind of watch their daily routine. And it has this really kind of low-key, realist documentary quality. And that just builds, without giving anything away, it builds to this kind of ending, this, this amazing climactic um, Führer that uh, is a, as, as the title gives away <laughs> it's a natural <laughs> Führer and um, it, it was it was achieved uh, apparently because like they shot some actual documentary footage of Forest Fire but the way that that's integrated into this narrative is it's quite extraordinary I, I can't imagine anybody coming away from that movie on the big screen thinking that they didn't get um, their money's worth <laughs> that's true <laughs> you paid for a cataclysm you got a cataclysm um well, I, I'm always curious what uh, what questions from the audience we might have for our, our uh, estimable panel here. Um, in the in the at the end there, and then we'll go to the middle. Hi there. Uh, I remember watching um, Wasps Wasp Network and okay. um, having a lot of conflicted thoughts um, uh, just about the film. And also, the director said that this was like a new cut that had just been completed. I think like a week or a day before. What did you mm. guys think about Wasp Network? Capital Wasp. <laughs> I, well, I, I may have seen the earlier. I mean, I know that I saw the earlier cut, so I don't. I don't know what the differences are. So what I saw was probably a little different from what you saw. Um, but I was. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm a huge Asayas fan. Not necessarily in the Carlos mode, so I wasn't as excited about this topic. You mean the sexy terrorist mode? <laughs> sexy terrorist mode, exactly. Um, this one doesn't have as much swagger just by nature of, the, of, of what Carlos was. Um, and I do like, I think Penelope Cruz is just wonderful, generally, and she's really good in the movie. Um, but I don't know, it felt a little narratively scattered. Uh, I, I, and, I, and I'm usually so energized by what he does with this camera. Like I go to an ACS film to see exactly where that camera goes and how it interacts with the actors. And I felt like this was a much more kind of staid, almost TV-ish aesthetic. And I was sort of, I was dulled by that, though it did make me into a slightly more active viewer in the sense that I had to follow narrative and story and plot. And because it's so complicated, that became its own kind of frustration too. So I don't know, I had different thoughts. Did, did anyone else see it? I mean, unfortunately, maybe fortunately, I didn't get to see it, but I was told that this cut that played at this festival was already streamlined. So the prior cut was more narratively scattered and he just cut down the auxiliary narratives. 
but uh, apparently maybe that didn't work. That's true. I saw both cuts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a game of Clue or something. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, it is. It's it's, it's tightened up and and uh, there's more explanatory oh, things okay. um, later on. Um, uh, I'm just I'm just gonna wrap up with it. I'm, I'm lost my program. I, I I in terms of talking about history, I'm just fascinated about trying to tell a chronicle of like these events from the 1990s where ostensibly you thought like the Cold War is over, uh, which of course we know with every passing day it was not entirely neatly done. Um, but uh, so you know the, the story. I don't know if people know the story of Wasp Network, but it's about this strange like spy and counter spy um, uh, operations going on between you know um, Florida, the U.S., and Cuba. And to just to try to attempt that to to, to render that, I thought was an interesting. Um, but really, I think it's a movie about relationships, actually. Um, and uh, I don't know. That's where I felt. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Now. This new a la carte digital service lets you watch new and classic films from the extensive Kino Lorber library. Featuring films fresh from theaters like Rick Alverson's The Mountain starring Jeff Goldblum and Abel Ferrara's Pasolini starring Willem Dafoe, plus classics by Jean-Luc Godard, Lena Wertmuller, Andre Tarkovsky, Ida Lupino, Zsa Zsa Ke, and more, Kino Now has something for every kind of film fan with no subscription required. Start watching today at KinoNow.com. Can I just quickly jump in with a comment? Oh, All the discussion about archival footage reminded me. Um, even though Martin Eden used so much archival, archival footage, mm. it just felt very distinctly contemporary to me in how it used the archival footage. It was like remixed and like appropriated mm. and anachronistic in a way that the contemporary condition, mm. when you decontextualize images and circulate them, felt to me. So it was a very fresh way of using archival footage, I felt. That was one of the things that I liked about that movie generally is how anachronistic everything right. was. You never know where you're situated in the 20th century. I really, I, I loved that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, it's a time machine film, but then so is the Scorsese film. It's a time machine in exactly the same way. Um, and a weird time machine because you have these actors who are simultaneously de-aged, but their bodies are the way they are now at 70, but you're looking at them and you're remembering how they were at 30. And that's a film that really is involved in uh, mm. the film is time machine, and so is Martin Eden. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I completely agree. Yeah, he, he did it. He, um, the, Rodrigo Prieta, the um, cinematographer for The Irishman, said some interesting things for our current issue uh, about actually trying to model the different periods, not just on what he thought the periods looked like, but how they were re represented in each period, like the particular mm -hmm. type of pho photographic stocks, um, which, I mean, ends up being kind of the way we remember things in a way. It's, you know, it's it's almost it's almost why, like, Super 8 is always <laughs> such a vivid, like, you know, stand in for the feeling of memory in a way. And because you're luxuriating in, in the, yeah. the amount of time that the movie takes to unfold, it's a three and a half, half hour movie, the Scorsese, you're also constantly trying to figure out where you are in time. And you're, so you're looking for these markers and you can't really use the faces. You have right. to kind of use other <laughs> things. And I mean, it's, it's, it's it, again, like it, that's an active viewership. And I found it just yeah. uh, disturbing and kind of brilliant. And I, it's a, yeah. I really want to see that movie again. Just yeah. to kind of piece it together, it's like a puzzle that doesn't that's not structured like a puzzle in a way. Yeah. Another question from the audience. Um, uh, I find it's really interesting that a lot of films that uh, in this year's festival dealing with genres and uh, like the first cows westerns and yeah. obviously Bakro and uh, Wild Goose Lake or some other films. So uh, maybe can you 
talk a little bit more out how mm. do you think or, or single out like a film that did really good was the genre bending or twisted our expectation on genre film yeah there were quite a few working with that there's phoebe were you gonna say oh i mean first cow felt also like a fable to me um it was kind of it's kind of unlike her previous film Sutton women which very much felt like a character study and it went in depth in that way whereas this very much focused on the friendship and that interaction with the kind of western frontier narrative and then it's like fabulous side i thought was really interesting yeah i mean the films that i like that have a lot to do with genre don't lean on the genre but you know they are catching it on the fly and turning it into something else so parasite is like that obviously it mm -hmm. starts in one genre and it mutates and mutates and mutates um or to the ends of the earth is like that because it could be just a travelogue, right? <laughs> I mean, that's its genre that turns into a musical comedy that, you know. Um, but there, I think it's very hard now to make a film that isn't a genre film. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is not a genre film. Um, but I think there are very, very few films, not just in this festival, but anywhere that aren't leaning on genre. I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously the way genre works is a combination of fulfilling and uh, subverting expectation. And um, in a context of something like New York Film Festival, I was sort of surprised watching Baccarat how much it just sort of went full throttle into the genre. Uh, <laughs> like that it was like the, pl the pleasure of actually just watching it play out. Um, I mean, it's not that that movie doesn't have surprises, but I think in terms of the genre beats, it felt very traditional in a lot of ways, which in a context of a festival like this is right. in a sense its own surprise. Right, that's right. Yeah. That's where the, the surprise comes in, yeah. Baccarat and Parasite are great examples of movies that you know try to go in with the least knowledge possible. You know, really read those articles. I mean, Amy wrote about Parasite in the new issue, and she does a really good job of saying, don't, don't read, read this. <laughs> <laughs> don't read this before you see it. it I, I mean, I, I completely agree. Anybody that I've talked to who's seen either Baccarat or Parasite says, oh, thank God I didn't know about this movie going in because it does not do what I expected it to do. And yeah. yes, they be, they're, they're genre films of a sort, but they keep changing. And then conversely, I would say a genre film that um, doesn't really subvert itself as it's going, it, though it's the whole thing is supposed to be a, a subversion, I guess is the Whistlers, the mm. the Poromboyo film, the Romanian director who's really trying for like a more straightforward noirish type film. There are ways in which it, it still has kind of the the hallmarks of his um, kind of more wry, sardonic, distanced art yeah. thing. Um, didn't entirely work for me. I know a lot of people just think it's kind of a delight. Um, but that's that's a <laughs> not, film. Not that's a film, and that's a film where I read, I really felt like it was leaning so heavily into genre that it didn't give me much else. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, as opposed to something like Parasite or Background, which was like, yeah, we're going to dive into genre, and then we're going to keep twisting and turning and giving you something, give you something surprising. Yeah. Look, Luca Marinelli in in uh, Martin Eden was uh, spectacular, and he will have a, a great um, career, like a sort of a Sundance. The trailer has been nominated for um, an Oscar, and no one in New York. Uh, it wasn't really picked up by the by the news, but it's not really um, a mafia movie. It's an international terrorism movie uh, on the heroin trade, which started 
when Governor Dewey gave these people the uh, open ports uh, to win World War II. And then they just made it, kept on making money thanks to the Vietnam War. And eventually he was involved, it wasn't um, a lawyer, uh, with um, uh, Judge Falcone, who was um, sort of a spiritual uh, sort of uh, hero for um, all Europeans um, in ending um, with Giuliani, uh, the pizza connection in the 80s. However, these people still continued and continue to make money off of what happened, especially in 9-11, especially through, through insurance fraud. I find it exceptional that such a movie like this was not picked up by, um, um, by the New York uh, press, since the only thing we hear from New York press or from law enforcement or from those, uh, whatever the hell those other people do in the FBI, um, is this uh, terrorist threat. And as you know, uh, we had an enormous opioid uh, problem um, following uh, the 9-11. So uh, Buscetta was an interesting um, uh, individual because on the one hand... I do want to give other people a chance to do... What the question... But the question is, yeah. why you get the Lincoln Center did a great job in bringing the traitor on one side and Martin Eden on the other side. But I think the question, the real question about the traitor is, do you think that the real message actually came out because it was covered up? There was no historical background. Even it was very you know, entertaining. I, I even studied the reaction of the crowd and everything. And that's Scorsese. That's, a, that's because we have Scorsese that sort of creates this nonsense and covers up actual critical thinking. Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll speculate from there. I mean, I don't know. It'll have a life. It's, it's coming. Uh, the Trader is, is being released by Sony Pictures Classics in, in the new year. So I'm sure it's going to have a very full life uh, of people appreciating um, the history behind it. But um, yeah, I don't know. It also showed fairly recently in the festival, I think. So, yeah, I mean, I hope yeah. there's more discussion around it when it yeah. actually gets released. It's, it's it, again, yeah, I, I was going to say that Sony picked it up, which is yeah. pretty promising. But I, I, I did get a sense that for some reason it was sort of an overlooked movie at yeah. the festival. It hasn't been talked about much yet. Yeah, I just don't know if there's, that means there's a particular, that's a part of a concerted effort of any sort. It's, it seems more of just the particular rhythm of the festival. Speaking of genre movies, I'm surprised no one's mentioned Oh Mercy, I thought, which I thought was a magnificent oh. acting by the character who plays Dawood. I mean, the actor who plays the character Dawood was probably the finest actor uh, portrayal that I saw in the festival. Did anyone else, did anyone else see it? Yeah, yeah I mean, I I, it, yeah. I'm glad you brought it up, actually. Yeah. I, I've been telling that to people throughout. I forgot about it in this moment, but um, the performances in Oh Mercy are just extraordinary, really extraordinary across the board. Um, but yeah, the, the genre of that film is a procedural. It's the De Plechen film. It's a little more straightforward than some of his recent films, but he shows that, unlike I thought with The Whistlers, he shows that he's really- <laughs> Don't he's, bash he's, on The Whistlers. He's really good at um, yeah. just doing this policier, this, like, this procedural film about this one case in this small town, the town where he actually grew up. Um, I thought it was really strong. Really powerful. Which is almost its own French tradition, I guess, of, you know, a kind of auteur filmmaker doing a, doing very well the type of police procedural or police tip. Well, and also just to, to, just the, the two um, great performances all around, but the two women 
who end up being suspects and things, Sarah Forestier and mm -hmm. Léa Seydoux, um, the way that their relationship keeps deepening and the way you learn more about them, um, the way that they play those characters and keep revealing new layers, it really was one of the highlights, I think, of, the, of this festival, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, the, this doesn't really connect to that anymore. <laughs> but I, I mean, one question I wanted to pose was just about films where um, art making or, or, or in some way are, is a liberating force for characters, which is always kind of fascinating to me because it, it just seems like an interesting belief, I guess, one that I sort of have. Maybe that's what's fascinating to me. Um, but like, obviously, and also how it interplays with the, whatever particular stories at hand. I mean, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, for one thing, just the way it, it thinks about um, the look, you know, the gaze. People maybe are sick of hearing about gazes, but, uh, um, but you know, a painter and, and, and uh, the way you encode what you look and, and all of that. I just, I found that a very, you know, moving example of that. And how she is the... Uh, Celine's uh, Scalma is mm -hmm. thinking about the scenes that women yeah. painters, if there had been more of them, would have painted. And she makes oh, yeah. those scenes in That's the movie, true. like when they go to the island, yeah. the scene with the abortion, abortion and yeah. the uh, kid in the bed. And yeah. all those are scenes that um, you can imagine being in um, 18th century paintings if there had been women painting them, yeah. or yeah. more women painting them. Yeah, that's really true, yeah. But the other art one is painting glory, obviously. Yep. Is, you know, uh, how art saved your life. Right, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, Un Film Dramatique by Eric Baudelaire oh, yeah. is also about mm -hmm. um, a collaboration he had with students um, in Saint-Denis outside Paris. Um, and it's over the course of a long time, him working with these students um, as they are filming a sort of amorphous film and answering for themselves in the process of making like sort of what a film is, what they want to make, how they want to express themselves mm -hmm. in a way that ends up being quite open-ended. There's actually also two one of my favorite scenes is not quite about the liberating. <laughs> um, I, know. I know, I'm such a cornball. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, there's the incredible scene in I Was at Home But where she um, uh, uh -huh. uh, sort of launches into an unrequested critique of a friend's <laughs> film. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, uh, the main character has been through um, sort of twinned traumas that um, I'm not sure at this point you really understand exactly what she's gone through, but you do understand that there's obviously something like very sort of frenetic in the energy of this family unit. Mm -hmm. She runs into a filmmaker outside in a supermarket and sort of launches into this idea of what his film was, which she admits that she walked out of, mm -hmm. and about how his sort of representation of trauma and death closeness to death is like completely off. Right. And it, it's an incredible scene of him sort of at first being confounded, but then coming to this yeah. empathy for um, this woman who's clearly latched onto something in his work that really hit this chord with what she's gone mm -hmm. through, even though it has sort of maybe nothing to do with what he was trying to right. get across in his work. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible performance by both characters, um, but it is an interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. A, and it's kind of a rare kind of scene to, to depict, yeah. but thing that the thing that happens definitely. Um, let's we have time for just one more question, I think, um, maybe in the back row there, since we haven't gone to the back. 
Um, so many of the films in the festival are over two hours, and I was wondering if you wanted to comment on that trend. Is do you think why do you think that we're getting all these very long films? Is it here to stay? They get paid by the minute. <laughs> the secret is out. Um, uh, I mean, I guess there are different answers for that. Um, Sometimes one answer, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's artistic decisions to a certain extent. I mean, one easy answer is often just digital, I guess, you know, that when you're shooting with digital, you can, um, you know, with the, the card, you'll be able to shoot at a longer clip, so to speak, um, before you have to stop. So, I don't know, that, you could say that might be one reason, um, I don't know, but really, I'm not sure. I mean, it happens, it's interesting that it happens in like many spheres of film too, like, you know, Marvel movies that are two hours or more. Um, so, um, I don't know. Why are movies long? More to love. Um, I, don't, I, I just don't, is that, do you, do you feel like that's a trend just this year? I feel like that's just been a thing for, everywhere. for a while. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it just felt, they felt long. Yeah, You're but saying like, you didn't like the movies. But now. I would say like an 80 minute movie can feel like the most endless movie ever if you don't like it. <laughs> this and is true. For me, The Irishman, I don't know, it just kind of flew by. It was three and a half hours. I didn't even feel time passing. Yeah. I mean, that said, I would appreciate a couple more 80 minute movies. It's <laughs> true. Yeah. Fire will come. Yeah. Fire will nice, come. And, nice and short. Short. Okay. All right. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. But thank you so much for our wonderful panel. And thank you for your questions. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Now. This new a la carte digital service lets you watch contemporary art house and classic films from the extensive Kino Lorber Library, including over 50 New York Film Festival alums. Start watching today at KinoNow.com. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>